Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Anthro Alert Podcast, where we take our live show from Minnesota Radio and publish it for you as a podcast for you to listen to at your convenience, whether you're sitting at home, driving in a car, or you somehow stumbled upon this and you don't know where you're at, you're going to listen to Anthro Alert, and it's about anthropology, and it's super cool, so I hope you enjoy it. Hey, hey, it's a beautiful day in sunny Tampa, Florida. Here we are, Friday afternoon, 3 p.m. You're listening to Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 a.m. on campus, and streaming worldwide at tunein.com and on the TuneIn app. Of course, you can always learn more on bullsradio.org. This is the Anthro Alert radio show. Be sure to find us on AnthroAlert.com. So this show is about anthropology and why it matters. So we try to frame each week with, with relevant uh, uh, research and information. We often feature guests from here, here at the Department of Anthropology here at the University of South Florida. Uh, we weigh in on topics and current events. We believe that this is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists to better connect with USF, the community, and raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. Uh, of course, we like to preface each of our shows with a disclaimer that the statements we make and the opinions that we express on AnthroAlert are our own, and they may not necessarily reflect or be representative, representative of anthropology as a discipline, USF, the USF Anthropology Department, student government, or... Uh, gorillas, <laughs> right? Our primate cousins. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so mm -hmm. my name is Renee. I am uh, one of the hosts here on Anthro Alert. And if you're tuning in because you're a fan of Spencer and you love to hear how he <laughs> how he does everything each week, uh, you'll be a little disappointed because his his voice is, you know, he's struggling today, but we're going to let him say hi real quick. <laughs> my, my beautiful radio voice is, it's on the fritz today, so <laughs> I'm going to be fairly silent. All right, so, so ladies and gentlemen, it's going to be up to me to try to, to, to fill in for Spencer and, and uh, try and facilitate some of this conversation and dialogue. So our show, our guest today is Dr. Thomas Placon here from the University of South Florida. Um, I believe Dr. Dr. Placon is the uh, director of the undergraduate? No longer. Oh, no, okay. Uh, well, yeah, at we one point. Rotate those positions. Yeah. Okay. So, so at one point, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll just skip that then. <laughs> so today Dr. Placon is going to be talking about uh, a lot of the research that he's done in the Crystal River area here in, fl in, uh, in Florida, uh, archaeological work, um, looking at the formation of early villages. So we're going we're gonna to get into that now. So uh, Dr. Placon, if you could kindly take us into the start of it. Okay. Thanks for having me, Spencer and Renee. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah. So it... Uh, it my research focuses, as you said, on um, the development of early villages, and when that's kind of broadly defined. It can mean anything from uh, kind of the early villages in the Neolithic. You know, you're talking about the time when, when people first start living together in sort of permanent villages, and those become a fixture on the landscape. So it, it goes back thousands of years in Europe to the Neolithic when people first started farming. Here in the Americas, it's a, it's a little bit later, um, and here in Florida, it's more of the first few centuries A.D., I would say, when people first start living in those sort of um, permanent communities, small villages. Um, and 
It's an interesting question anthropologically. Uh, it's kind of counterintuitive, or it might seem kind of surprising. I mean, I think as anthropologists and people together, you know, in general, we're so used to living in larger communities now that we kind of take it for granted. Um, but from an anthropological sp perspective, and specifically from a biological anthropo anthropological perspective, it's a little um, surprising that people would move into these communities um, just because uh, there's a tendency for people to kind of protect their own self-interest when they're producing their subsistence, uh, you know, getting their food, um, that it's easier not to share most of the time. And um, so the sort of evolution of sharing and cooperation is a big topic, um, not only in anthropology, but in uh, uh, the biological sciences, too. Um, and I, I look at uh, this decision to uh, move into villages as part of that larger sort of evolution of cooperation. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of the broad framing of it. Okay, so, so I think that's maybe one of the basic assumptions that people have, or at least that I have, in as assuming that there's always a first event. Mm. So I often think of this when I think of um, foods, and you know, maybe some, some curious foods that are like, oh, I would never have thought that this is something you could eat. Like, how did, how did somebody realize that if you cook a certain grain like it, you, it's edible, and, and and so, then thinking about how did we actually start to kind of uh, form these communities, these villages? That's, that's to me, that's like a similar type of question. I, I, I don't know if that makes sense to you, Dr. Pecan. Yeah, I, you, I think that does make sense. I and I have the same sort of kind of thoughts about agriculture. I think with the and it's probably kind of parallel with you know with agriculture, people start um, planting some crops or experimenting with crops and then it becomes more and more of a steady sort of progression as you you know as they start into farming I think it's kind of similar with uh, with people um, starting to live in villages in that uh, what we see a lot archaeologically is before people start living permanently in villages they kind of take the half step right and and live in villages for part of the year maybe um, or they come together um, for certain at certain times of the year for big ceremonies where they might live together for you know short periods of time, so it's kind of a it's somewhat incremental. Um, I wouldn't frame it as being too incremental because I think sometimes there are sort of more s sudden and dramatic transformations mm -hmm. that push people <coughs> into into those sort of larger cooperative living arrangements. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, Dr. Pecan, most of your work is in the Crystal River area. Is that accurate? That most recent work, yes. Most, okay. Yes. Um, so and that's, and that's going to be part of what we're going to be talking about today. Mm -hmm. T tell us a little bit about where Crystal River is located. So Crystal River is just about an hour and a half north of uh, Tampa, um, just due north pretty much um, on the coast. Uh, it's famous for the manatees that congregate there in the, in the springs. Um, when the weather turns cold, they go to the springs to, uh, to warm up because the water is a constant... 72 degrees or something mm. um, so that's kind of why Crystal if, if you've heard of Crystal River and you're not from there that's probably the reason why and the actual Crystal River site is a state park it's managed by the Florida Department of Environmental Protection it's located right on the, the river of the same name um, uh, just north of town okay and the archaeological site is in the state park Correct. The state park exists because of the archaeological site. Okay, and so that means that it's like a protected area of some sort? Right. It, it, the site has kind of an unfortunate history in some ways, um, and I can go ahead and get into that if you'd, if you'd like. Um, 
it, it was discovered, so to speak, in the late 1800s, early 1900s uh, by an antiquarian by the name of C.V. Moore. And archaeologists use the term antiquarian. We're referring, this is before archaeology is really a scientific discipline. So these were individuals that were more mostly interested in collecting artifacts for their own personal collections. And C.B. Moore was quite a character. Uh, it's a really fascinating chapter in Florida archaeology. Uh, he was a wealthy physician from Philadelphia who would come down here in his spare time in the winter. He kept a, uh, he kept a steamship called the Gopher um, in Tampa. Um, and he would come down um, and then hire a crew and they would power the steamship all along the coast of the Gulf Coast, up the Atlantic Coast, up the rivers, looking for Native American mound sites to excavate. And um, he knew what he was looking for. He, he knew he, he would recognize burial mounds in particular because he knew that's where the, the burial goods were, the fancy stuff he was interested in. And so he targeted those. And of course, the excavations were very poor by contemporary standards. Uh, he, it, you know, he would rip through these burial mounds looking for artifacts. Um, so, so poor meaning that that uh, he wasn't necessarily capturing any contextual data. the The purpose of his excavation wasn't to uh, gain knowledge. It was to get all the goods. It was to <laughs> basically yes. <laughs> he did uh, more so than some. He did have some questions in mind. There was, you know, this was a time period where people were still wondering about these mounds to a certain extent. There were still some questions about who built them. Um, and he, he did kind of use that to an extent as an excuse. But, yeah, for the most part, he was just looking for things uh, to for his own personal collections. He did eventually donate them all to the uh, to uh, various museums. Most of them are now at the um, National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. Um, Moore was particularly enamored with Crystal River. It's, I think it's the only site he went back to three times over the course of about 25 years. Um, and in the course of that time, he excavated probably upwards of 400, 500 graves in a total of about three weeks, which by archaeological standards is just you know, mind-boggling because, of course, we take a whole lot more care. And, in fact, we try not to dig Native American burials as much as possible these days. Mm -hmm. um, so any the upside was that Moore's work really put Crystal River on the map archaeologically. He recovered some fantastic artifacts um, really exotic uh, artifacts of stone and bone and minerals uh, like copper um, that are not native to Florida. So these things had been traded in for from thousands of miles away in some cases. And so Crystal River became famous largely as a result of Moore's work. Um, and uh, that's what eventually led to the site's protection. Um, there, as I said, kind of an unfortunate uh, chapter uh, in Crystal River's history is uh, by the middle 20th century um, the site is kind of was divided by a couple landowners. One of them was more than willing to kind of uh, cede the property to the state. The others were not and a, a large portion of the largest mound at Crystal River was graded away and used as fill which unfortunately happened a lot in Florida. It's just you know this is a an area where there are a lot of low places and people need road fill. And shell mounds are a very convenient source of road fill. Um, so um, this, the, you know, a good half to two-thirds of that mound was graded away. And they built a trailer park over uh, part of the site. And that was there until the 90s when a big storm came through 
and uh, washed away most of the trailers, and the state acquired the last part of the property. The, the road fill and, and the, the coloration of the roads here in Florida might be one of the first things that I noticed uh, when I moved over from uh, the, the American Southwest is uh, mm. the, the color of the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's... Uh, yeah, I mean, even in, uh, I've looked around, walking around on the streets, and sometimes you can see little pieces of shell. I think most of that is just sort of fossilized shell that they've dug up. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of archaeological sites um, got destroyed for road fill, too. Um, just a, I have a quick question here. Um, based off of, like, that history in C.B. Moore, like, you know, the antiquarianism and, you know, using the mounds as, as fill and things like that, what kind of, like, regulations came out of that as sort of contemporary archaeology started to develop? Yeah, um, it was really mid-20th century uh, that um, you, s- you get most of the archaeological legislation being passed by Congress and signed by the presidents. And a lot of it was to do with reservoir construction in the 50s and 60s. In the post-war years, um, construction boom, you know, the interstate system, that sort of thing, and that's what prompted um, some of the laws that do protect archaeological sites, most of which were passed in the 60s. Mm. And now, of course, we are moving into an era where we're starting to see some of those laws Mm. being kind of challenged or weakened Mm. uh, along with the power of the federal government in general. Mm. Sign of the times. Sign of the times. Uh, So so how did Crystal River, or how does that fit into your research question of uh, early, early village formation? Right. So, uh, you know, the site was famous. Uh, there had been a little bit more work there in the 20th century by another archaeologist named Ripley Bullen, who um, was, you know, more trained as a professional archaeologist. But unfortunately, um, also, like Moore, did not take very good notes or keep very good maps and focus mostly on the burial mounds. Um, so uh, Crystal River's fame you know it was it was mentioned in prominent textbooks in the 1950s and 1960s but then without with the absence of any kind of modern work it had kind of fallen by the wayside um, and kind of was entering obscurity Um, and so when I moved to Florida you know I had moved I had worked on a site from the in the same time period which we're talking about the first millennium AD what we call the woodland period um, in the southeast Uh, I had worked on a site from the same time period for my dissertation Crystal River was a natural fit. Um, these two sites were probably in contact with each other, even though they're three or four or five hundred miles apart. Um, so it was a good fit for me to work locally. Um, and so, you know, I started thinking about it. I had been thinking about these issues regarding early villages based on my previous work uh, at, uh, elsewhere. Uh, but it, this seemed like a good opportunity to kind of to do some work on a site that really needed some some modern interpretation and to address larger issues relating to sort of the early village uh, questions. Okay. Uh, So looking now at uh, maybe a different kind of perspective, so what are some counter arguments to evolutionary anthropologists that uh, people will act in their own self-interest? Well, I think actually the empirical evidence for the, at least for the early village question, actually argues against this. If you look around, and certainly in the Crystal River case, um, but I, you know, I'm part of what I and my co-author are doing in a book we have coming out on Crystal River is kind of look, compare our case to other cases around the world. And what I think the empirical evidence suggests is that these villages start before there's evidence for a lot of competition or conflict. 
Um, you know, later in, in prehistory or uh, pre-contact era, southeast and Gulf Coast, you see evidence for warfare reflected in iconography. Um, arrow points show up in, num in quantities on archaeological sites. You even get sites that have defensive walls and stuff. But we don't see that in this period where the f villages first form. Um, there's, it doesn't look like there's much compelling people to move in in terms of conflict. So I see it more of a story of co cooperation. Mm. Um, in terms of counter arguments, you know, there, there are even, you know, Marxist approaches tend to look for conflict within its societies too. Um, but to me, they're kind of missing the mark on this story also because we're not seeing that sort of um, evidence for that sort of conflict. Oh, okay, so for our listeners who may not be that familiar with uh, a Marxist approach, could you maybe just uh, just expand that a little bit real quick? Sure. Well, you know, th th there's Marxists, in, at least in, in anthropology and archaeology, they tend to look for uh, the impetus for change in human societies tends to come from internal divisions within a society. So divisions on class and gender are, uh, are the main ones that people tend to look at. So it's those, and from a Marxist perspective, it's, it's those sort of conflicts um, within a society that sort of drive the development of more um, different social relations or different social formations. Ah, all right. So we're going to take a sh very short music break. Uh, just to remind you, listen to Bulls Radio at WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, um, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at the TuneIn uh, app and TuneIn.com. So we'll, you know, stay tuned. We'll be back in a few. All right. Welcome back. You're listening to Bulls Radio here on WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa. This is Anthro Alert, the show about anthropology and why it matters. Today, our guest, Dr. Placon from uh, here at the University of South Florida Department of Anthropology, discussing work done at Crystal River to help explain and answer questions about early village formation here in Florida and on the Gulf Coast. And uh, it's been an interesting conversation so far. Um, so our, our really our next question for Dr. Pecan is how how does the Crystal River site in particular help answer some of those questions about early village formation? Right. So you know what you need to do, I guess, to address this qu some of these questions about how uh, about early villages is really just build some detailed sort of histories about um, how particular sites developed and changed over time. And s this is kind of keeping with uh, a, a sort of trend in archaeology recently. Uh, people have called this a historical turn in, in archaeology. It's kind of um, recognizing that Native um, that pre-contact Native American history could be as dynamic as what we associate with our own history, right? There was a tendency in the past to kind of look at Native American societies as being kind of slow changing, conservative, um, but we're trying, you know, a lot of people are turning away from that and realizing uh, that Native American history, the pre-contact era, had a similar sort of dynamism. Um, so fortunately that, you know, there are some new methods that help us get at that. Um, Can first you explain of all, dynamism real fast? Well, I mean, the capacity to change quickly. Okay. Uh, more, you know, not gradualistic change, but more kind of event-based. Um, so there are some techniques that we can use now to get at that. I mean, radiocarbon data has improved a lot 
um, but now we're doing sort of, and I don't want to explain this, but we're doing Bayesian statistics can help us kind of reduce some of the uncertainties of associated with radiocarbon dating and, and really kind of be more precise about what happened when. Mm. Um, and then in terms of the field work, you know, it just means good archaeology. Um, you know, we had a lot of uh, excavations of the burial mounds already by C.B. Moore and Ripley Bullen, but we didn't have much from the village at all. Um, so, and that was kind of key to our research questions. So, um, we used some new geophysical techniques or reasonably new geophysical techniques, things like ground penetrating radar and electrical magnet uh, resistivity um, that use either um, radar waves or electrical currents into the ground to kind of give you a picture about where things are buried. And that, that helps us, especially on a site that's preserved because we won't, don't want to dig up you know, half the site looking for what we're looking for. Um, those techniques give us a kind of a, a better target um, or a better way of, of targeting what we're looking for. Um, and then we did do some uh, small-scale excavations um, at Crystal River. You're talking about b what we call midden, which is, you know, the debris of everyday domestic life that's piled up um, six to ten feet deep. Um, so you're digging down through layers and layers of the site's history to the, to, you know, to the very founding of the site. Uh, it gets a little complicated at Crystal River because that those very earliest occupation levels are right at where the water table is now. Um, sea level was lower when people lived there. So we actually have to kind of dig into the water table a little bit, or we dig around the tides. So, so one of the uh, reasons that you're trying to limit, or, or that you would like to limit excavation, is in part because it's a protected area, but also because you're trying to preserve it. Right. Yeah. yeah that's a kind of an ethic in archaeology these days. If the site is not going to be, you know, impacted by development or something, some reason that you'd want to dig it all up, that we try to uh, dig as little as possible. And it's also the reality too of uh, when you dig a lot, especially on a site like Crystal River, that's pretty rich in terms of artifacts. There's a lot to curate. You're obligated to, you know, take care of those artifacts in perpetuity and uh, it's expensive to, to s maintain and store all that stuff. Um, and so it sounds like a lot of these archaeological techniques and methods have uh, changed and evolved greatly, you know, uh, throughout the years from when, um, you know, these a antiquarians and, and collectors were just uh, digging willy-nilly. Yeah. Really, just the past two decades. Part of it's the you know the actual equipment. Part of it is the, the software and the computer technology to process it. Yeah, so th so there may be a lot of different driving factors as to how uh, a modern day archaeologist would approach answering some of their research questions. Oh, it's vastly different. I mean, and and there's also s the sensitivity to Native American concerns too. Mm. So yeah, I actually, I want to kind of want to go back to that a little bit. Uh, so you mentioned that there maybe wasn't an as much emphasis on the pre-contact um, uh, communities and, and, and times. And, and actually, I kind of want to ask, like, why, like, what do you think changed or, or why do you think people are starting to put more value into asking questions pertaining to those time frames? Well, it wasn't that the time frame was, was ignored. It was just that their conception of it uh, was, was different. Um, so um, part of it was, and it, it, it Going back further into the archaeological past, um, it was that, you know, there was no radiocarbon dating until the 1950s. So they were taking sort of guesses about how old stuff was. Um, and a lot of the assumptions 
were based on the idea that artifact styles sort of change gradually through time. And so what they ended up with was kind of a very condensed chronology. Um, they didn't think Native Americans, Native Americans necessarily had that much time depth in the Americas. Um, and they also conceived of change just being kind of very slow and gradual, like I said. Uh, so, you know, it's just recently, uh, you know, people, and then, you know, anthropology progressed into sort of more evolutionary perspectives, which also brought sort of a gradual assumption about how things change. Um, you know, the idea was societies went through sort of regular sort of stages or progressions, um, and uh, kind of one of the assumptions there too was that it was a it was a slow process. Uh, but now there's more kind of with this historical turn in archaeology, more of a realization again that. Um, Things can happen quickly, um, and that's not true just of our own society, but of, of societies in the past. All right, so now that Crystal River is a state park and it's somewhat protected, um, there are, or so, okay, so looking at the site, um, how does, how do some of those artifacts, the findings, the information that you get from the site, how have those been able to answer some of those questions or, or tell tell us about how or why people started to move into and form villages? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, to the first part of your question, you know, a lot of it is is just getting better dates on stuff. So we went back and w used the collections from Moore and Bullen and, and actually dated some of those burials and then um, did a lot of dating on um, the occupation levels in our excavation units and in the mounds at Crystal River. We took cores in some of the non-burial mounds. And so uh, I think probably before we started, there were maybe five radiocarbon dates from Crystal River, and now they're uh, somewhere in the range of 60 or so. It's one of the, the most heavily dated, most intensively dated sites in Florida and probably in the southeast. So we can talk about change in of relatively fine scales um, and uh, um, so I forgot the second part of your question now. Uh, so, so just basically trying to answer the question of to oh. w like why. Right, right. So and that lets us see both sort of general processes that might be similar to other sort of early village societies but also kind of the, the sort of particular historical circumstances that that led to Crystal River's formation. In the case of Crystal River we think that it was probably a, 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 like a religious center where no one lived, but people came occasionally to bury their dead relatives, probably for centuries before people started living at the site. Um, and we can't say for sure, but we think that there was uh, an increase, well, we, we can't say with reasonable certainty that there was an increase in sea level um, right about the time people start living at Crystal River more permanently. And we suspect what's going on is that those people that had been coming for ceremonies started to live at the site more permanently because you know this the the islands that they were living on further out into the gulf were becoming harder to live on um, probably you know becoming flooded more often um, so they sought refuge in a, in a little bit more of a protected location and so um, you had sort of a, a I don't know, kind of uh, people centering on a certain location that had s importance to them already. So what are some examples of, of, of findings at Crystal River that, that actually tell you that um, of, how this, of how the use of the site changed over time? Right, so we, we, we take 
samples across the site. And so we can see the village kind of start and grow um, based on, you know, relative dating of artifacts. You know, ceramic types are a good thing for dating. Um, but then also the radiocarbon dates that I was talking about. Um, and uh, so, the r and the radiocarbon dates, we try to date um, things that are short-lived because you get better radiocarbon dates um, on things that don't live for a long time. Uh, so seeds and nuts, things like that, small pieces of charcoal. Um, shell is abundant at Crystal River, but unfortunately marine organisms are harder to date because they're just more, for reasons that are kind of complicated, uh, the, the dates are more erratic. Uh, the marine carbon reservoir um, is much more fluctuating than the atmospheric carbon reservoir. Mm -hmm. So to get to your question again, you know, we can map out how the village changed through time based on these samples that we've taken across the, across the landscape. So based on the sampling that you take, you can infer um, uh, the state of the site at any given time. Population size. Uh, one thing I haven't mentioned is also there are new techniques for um, uh, we can take uh, oxygen isotope values from oysters and see what season they were harvested. And so by doing enough samples of those, you can see how permanent the site is because if you're getting oysters that were harvested all through the year, then it's a better indication that people were living there permanently. Now, to me, so when I hear that, I think, well, that's just amazing that, that we're able to, that we're at the point where we can actually make these type of uh, inferences and, and be relatively certain that we're correct with them. Um, I, 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 I'm sure there's some people out there who'd be like, oh, that's just a bunch of hogwash. <laughs> <but> <laughs> uh, all right, well, well, I think it's probably time we take a little short break. With a little bit of music break, we'll come back, we'll, we'll finish the show because Dr. Blacon has, uh, has a book that's going to be coming out very soon, and we want to we hear about that. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a few. Welcome back. You're listening to Anthro Alert here on Bulls Radio WSF 89.7, HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus. You know, you can always find us on TuneIn.com, the TuneIn radio app, as well as, you know, on YouTube, AnthroAlert.com. Uh, you can find the links to the YouTube videos if you like to, to listen to us via YouTube. That's fine. Uh, but there's also several of our past episodes are on anthroalert.com. It's a, uh, an audio podcast format. Quality isn't the best, but it's free, so we're not going to complain about it. Uh, all right, so back to today's show. We're talking with um, USF professor Dr. Placan, who is telling us about a lot of the research and work that he's done in the here in Crystal River, here in Florida, to help explain and answer some of the questions that we have about early village formation, especially here in Florida on the on the Gulf Coast and we've had a very a very interesting conversation so far now we're gonna kinda take it into a, a, a slightly a smidgen of a different direction we're gonna actually let Dr. Placan tell us about a uh, a soon-to-be published soon-to-be released book and uh, yeah so, so tell us about a book you have coming out right so the book we have coming out hopefully spring of uh, 2018 is called uh, New Villages, New Histories of Village Life at Crystal River. It's it's authored by myself and my uh, collaborator and friend, Dr. Victor Thompson, who's at the University of Georgia. And so we've already published a lot of articles on our research, which was funded by the National Science Foundation. And, uh, you know, we've had a lot of articles come out. But the book, I think, I hope, is uh, uh, 
good at sort of tying things together into a bigger picture. Um, you know, the articles tend to piece off smaller bits of research, um, but it's fun to do a book and kind of um, bring it together, kind of synthesize, um, and to also to kind of put it in sort of less jargony terms. Um, you know, I'm not sure it's going to be something that people want to pick up at the airport to read <laughs> on their flight or something like that. Uh, but for people who are interested in Crystal River or in this in, in archaeology, um, it uh, hopefully will be easier to read than your typical you know journal article. Yeah, so I imagine um, the approach to writing a book is going to be slightly different. Like how do you like what do you imagine your audience to be? It's a little tough in academic you know with academic books because you do want them to be academic at some level, right to, to address some sort of uh, research question. Um, but you are, you also want to speak to a broader audience, I think. Um, you know, Crystal River is a state park. I hope the book will be for sale there and with something that visitors can pick up. So you are sort of, to a certain extent, sort of trying to please two audiences. And, um, you know, I th from my own experience reading the work of other archaeologists, some do it really well. Uh, some, you know, probably lean, I mean, by very well, I mean appeal to a broad audience. Some probably... Um, end up appealing more only to academic audiences. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I, I hope mine falls in the former category, but uh, you never know, you know, because you get so immersed in it um, that it's hard to kind of back off and, and sometimes and say, uh, does this make sense to an average person? Even though I had some average people, well, I wouldn't call them average. Had some friends and, uh, and you know, uh, colleagues read it over, but, uh, you know, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine just how challenging that that would be uh, to try and uh, write something for for such a broad and general audience. I mean, you know, the the stuff that I write, people have to read it. You know, like you know, if I if yeah. I write a paper for a class, the, the professor has to read it. If you know, I'm, I'm writing an, uh, an abstract or a submission for a journal, uh, they at least have to read enough to know they don't like it. <laughs> yeah. So, I think I I find it kind of fun after you've been writing a lot of journal articles because journal journal articles are. You know, there's kind of a formula to writing a journal article, right? Um, and and they're also pretty short, and you've got to get to the point pretty quickly. And especially these days, it seems like more and more of the journals have um, smaller word limits. Um, so with a book, there's a chance to be a little more creative, to kind of go off on some topics, maybe even pursue a tangent once in a while. Um, so there, I feel like they're a little. It's a chance to be a little bit more creative with your writing than a typical journal article. Yeah, and I imagine you'd be able to include a lot more extra information, um, like figures or images that that add to the context or the story of what you're trying to convey. It's true, um, although it's kind of a reverse. There, you can have more figures uh, and images, but these days a lot of the journals are online. And you can have color there much easily, much more easily. Um, book publishers still tend to shy away from color because it is expensive to reproduce in the printed format. So that's the downside. Mm -hmm. so, so you mentioned uh, you're collaborating uh, on this, on this, or you col collaborate. I'm sure the book is done at this point. Mm -hmm. just, it's just going through the final stages of right, pre right, production stuff. Um, yeah, tell us about that. Uh, how did how did you find your collaborator? How did that relationship happen? We are actually old friends, uh, and 
at one point early in the Crystal River sort of process, uh, he was at the University of West Florida. I had just moved to Tampa to teach at US, USF. We decided to have a field school sort of in the middle at Crystal River. Um, so we had a joint field school with UWF students and USF students um, for a few weeks at Crystal River. And uh, it went well. Uh, we worked together well. And it's turned into a, a really productive collaboration. I really would suggest young scholars, if you can find someone and you can work with, it's just your, it's kind of an exponential out increase to your output on scholarship sometimes because, you know, he'll take the lead on certain things and then I'll take the lead on other things. It's been, um, it's been a good process. Now I know it's not always the case. I know I've <laughs> I have plenty of colleagues who have uh, horror stories of, wor <laughs> of <laughs> working with other people, but uh, just choose your collaborators wisely, I guess. Well, 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 Spencer's off mic, so he can't, he can't say anything <laughs> anymore. But, but yeah, he's probably thinking, oh, how did I get stuck co-hosting yeah. with this guy? He's <laughs> um, so, so obviously then writing the book and working with somebody to write a book is much different than co-authoring a, a, a journal. Um, and it seems like, uh, ha well, I don't know if I could ask, like how, many, how, how many, is this your first book? How many books have you b worked on in the past? Um, my dissertation was published by the University of Alabama Press uh, like a year or so after I finished it. Um, and then I, I have an edited volume. So I guess this is my second book as an author, and uh, I have another book or two as an editor. Okay, so, so plenty of experience there then, right? All right, so uh, so at this point, I think I'm just going to ask you to maybe kind of for all the, the, the young archaeologists, the aspiring anthropologists, what what advice do you would, would you like to share with people so that they could maybe you know kind of frame their career tra trajectory? You know, like what are some things that people should be on the lookout for as far as uh, you know how do you how do you pick a good anthropology program? How do you how do you decide? anthropology is worthwhile for your study? Hmm. Good question. Um, I, I would start off by saying for especially for undergrads but even for you know first year grad students maybe to you know get take advantage of as many opportunities as you can to get in and do archaeology do field work. Uh, we're fortunate in Florida to have the Florida Public Archaeology Network which is a state organization that facilitates uh, the relationship between archaeologists and the public and communicates archaeology to the public. They often have volunteer opportunities. And then there's, of course, the kind of the business side of archaeology, the cultural resource management, which is archaeology that's done for compliance with federal and state laws. Um, and so there are private companies doing archaeology, including a couple in Tampa. And so those are great experience, great ways for younger people to get experience. And by doing that, you, you get out on a variety of sites and get exposed to a lot of different stuff really quickly and you can figure out what you like and don't like and then I think you know if you pursue that a little bit if you if you want to go on in school you know find out who's doing that stuff you like and find out if people like them <laughs> if they're good to work with you know go to go to some meetings maybe meet them um, and see if there's somebody you want to spend a couple of years with or in the case of a PhD you know four or five years hanging around and working with um, and I think I think that would be my advice uh, it's good advice what what uh, drew you into anthropology archaeology 
You know, um, a lot of archaeologists have these stories about collecting artifacts when they were kids. I, I didn't really do that much, but I just I took a, a course from uh, an, a social historian on the, on the Southeastern Indians. Uh, his name was Charles Hudson. He literally wrote the book on the Southeastern Indians, um, and he had a really compelling sort of uh, lecture style. He was an expert in the field. He could really talk about the native peoples of the Southeast. And then I took an archaeology field school, and it just kind of came together for me. Um, just I, I, I loved the sort of physical aspect of archaeology, the material, you know, being able to kind of touch the material remnants of these societies. Um, but also thinking about them, you know, at a more conceptual level with the his, with the historical perspective. Um, so those two things have just convinced me that this was uh, something that was a good fit for me. Um, again, being able to go out in the field and, and actually do the field work and, and do the excavation, um, but then also kind of pursue the laboratory analyses and the write-up too. Um, it's just a good mix for me. And has your focus on uh, material culture impacted at all, like how you view contemporary culture? Like, like, uh, do you do you look at um, I don't know, just oh yeah, possessions in a different way? I think I think any archaeologist would tell you that uh, you kind of look at the world a little bit differently. Um, you know, I was just talking about this in one of my classes, and archaeologists like to kind of. Um, analyze the built environment. We, we pay attention to the spatial relationships of buildings and the layout of, of the physical world. And it's, you know, it's hard to divorce yourself of that when you're just walking around, you know, campus, uh, things like that. So I, I was actually having my students the other day, we were talking about uh, an archaeological case study of um, the study of gardens in the colonial era and how they were a manifestation of, of colonial power. And so I put up a, a map of campus and taught and asked them to kind of think about campuses as the power how power relations were expressed on campus and they picked up on it really quickly talking about how anthropology is in the oldest building on campus and oh, is it really the oldest building? <laughs> well i don't know if it's the oldest but it's one of the oldest it yeah. feels like it's the oldest <laughs> yeah. so and of course the sciences get the fancy new buildings so yeah yeah, yeah there there are roaches in there they might be older <laughs> than i am they, they've been yeah they've been there a bit um See, uh, so tell us one more time the, na the title of the book. So the book title is New Histories of Village Life at Crystal River. And when can we expect to see it for purchase somewhere? It should be out by March or April of 2018. All right. And, um, and most of the work out of that book is from the Crystal River site? That's correct. So, when, so once that book is published, be sure, so if you're listening, be, go visit the Crystal River State Park. Okay, go to the, the, the state, the the shops of the store museum store there's yeah, a little museum there <laughs> yeah and uh be sure to pick that book up because it's going to be able to maybe add some context to to your visit there at the state park um a lot of state parks in florida but uh dr pecan um thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to to visit with us and tell us a little bit about the work that you do um because it is important and i i always learn a lot here on the show um, I'm appreciative that I actually have this chance to do it, so thanks USF and USF uh, student government for putting us up here. Now, Dr. Blacon, if you have any, like, you know, just thanks or acknowledgments you'd like to give, that would be a good time. Uh, I'd, I'd just thank you guys, Spencer and Renee, for having me here. I think this is a great thing you guys are doing with the Anthro Alert, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's all. 
All right, so we're going to close the show up then. Uh, if you liked, if you enjoyed listening to the show and you haven't heard anything about anthropology on the radio before, um, that might be—I don't know—we might be the only ones doing it. But, <laughs> but we are not the only podcast because we also have a podcast. So if you—if this was interesting to you and you want to hear more about anthropology and you don't want to hear me or Spencer, uh, I suggest you know just look up uh, on whatever, however you acquire podcasts. Um, a story of us—that's out at Ohio State University. That's that's actually really good. I kind of—that's my favorite one. Um, this Anthro Life, Anthropod. Um, yes, at least you know three that you can look at. So that's it for today. Again, you can find us on AnthroAlert.com. Look for us on YouTube, Twitter, everywhere, everywhere. We're everywhere. So there's a BullsRadio.org, <laughs> WUSF, eighty-nine point seven HD three Tampa, sixteen twenty AM on campus and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn Radio app. Um, for Spencer, and my name is Renee. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Thanks.